Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, and Garrett and support the podcast on Patreon with a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Drew Banta Winters. Ms. Winters is a seasoned policy and strategic communications advisor with an expertise in disaster management, natural resources, and ecosystem restoration and fisheries. She joined the American Fisheries Society as policy director in May of 2017. Previously, she served in a key leadership role for Governor Bobby Jindal on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. She also handled legal and policy matters on a range of fisheries issues for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Prior to her tenure with the state of Louisiana, she served as a key federal policy advisor on the long-term recovery of the Gulf Coast following Hurricane Katrina with a focus on flood control, flood insurance, and ecosystem restoration. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Katie. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn more, especially because I only have ever taken one policy class in (laughs) my life, so I think it'll be interesting. Well, you're not alone. Lots of fisheries professionals don't have much experience in policy, and many are really afraid of it or don't want to touch it. So we're always looking for more AFS members and fisheries professionals to get more involved in the policy arena. (laughs) Great. How did you first get started with environmental policy? Well, I like to call myself an accidental conservationist. It's probably not the first time that your listeners will hear this. But in reality, I was very interested in environmental issues from a very young age. I grew up right next to a chemical plant where children in the surrounding areas had a really, really high rate of cancer. So I was really interested in that connection. Um, I really love Louisiana. That's where I'm from. And about the same time, Louisiana's coastal land loss crisis was really coming to the forefront of people's attention. And that really captured me. And that's something from a young age that I knew that I wanted to work on. And ultimately, I was able to do that, uh, working on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. It was really an exciting time. How did you end up going down the policy route as opposed to being an environmental scientist? Um, so I'm a much more liberal arts and communication focused (laughs) person than a hard science person. Um, and I was always really fascinated by the workings of government. You know, it's just one of those, those civics nerds, right? It just was my passion for a really long time. And so I knew that I wanted to do government affairs. It just sort of took me a little bit longer to get there. I went the law school route rather than the science route. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So you mentioned this, that you worked on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. What was the work like for that? Oh, wow. It just sounds so so overwhelming. um, (laughs) Yeah, it it was. So I um, left Washington, D.C. to go back to Louisiana right when the Obama administration came in and sort of the long-term recovery of the Gulf Coast was winding down at that time. So that was right at the beginning of April of 2010. And... I intended to be working with the Corps of Engineers, working, sort of being this liaison between the state and the Corps of Engineers to really advance Louisiana's coastal restoration projects and and advancing Louisiana's master plan for a more sustainable coastline. Well, two weeks later, the Deepwater Horizon oil rig blew up in the Gulf and 
lo and behold, that's what I was working on. So it really was the policy of the state to direct any funds recovered from that oil spill to coastal restoration. So that, you know, that was the side, the policy side of things. It was a super intense experience. Um, terrifying, really um, uncharted waters. You know, even Exxon Valdez was not of the scope or scale that this was. And I'm not an oil spill expert, or at least I wasn't at the time, mm -hmm. and I'm not a scientist. Um, so my part to play was on the communication side of things and the stakeholder engagement side and sort of keeping our trains running with this big multidisciplinary team that had to manage this spill. And at the end of the day, it was a legal case. And we had to both protect our case and keep our story out in the public consciousness because BP was putting out, you know, front page ads or full page ads in newspapers saying how they were making it right. And we really needed to push back about uh, against that narrative. Mm -hmm. and, and we did that successfully with a $20 billion global settlement in the case. Ultimately, I'm really proud of that work, but it took a really amazing, talented, dynamic team. I just had one small part to play in that. Yeah. Very cool. So in general, with environmental disasters like that, or with your work uh, recovering from Hurricane Katrina, how does policy play a role in how, in, I guess, in addressing environmental disasters? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, because it really means, it really depends on whether you mean sort of policy with a small P or policy with a big P. So in the case of Deepwater Horizon, right, it was the state's policy. It wasn't written anywhere. It just sort of was a de facto thing. It was, we knew that ultimately we were going to use that recovery to benefit the resources, but also to do that through coastal restoration. So that was policy with a small P. In the case of Hurricane Katrina, you know, policy like do we waive the cost share for the state on rebuilding the hurricane protection infrastructure? So policy can really matter in both of those instances, but it can be two different, very, very different types of policy. But I will tell you that in both of those instances, communications are just as important as the policy. It's shaping the narrative around those issues to get the outcomes that you want that really matter in policy. Yeah. Would you say... I guess I'm trying to think of as fisheries professionals, is that like, should we just be improving our own communication skills to like when policies come up to help inform them correctly? Or that's a perfect segue to talk about AFS's amazing science communication programs. So not only am I AFS as policy director, but I also sort of lead our science communication programming. I work with this amazing, talented, dynamic, supportive group of women volunteers who have built these programs with me from the ground up, Julie Clausen, Carolyn Hall, Katie O'Reilly, um, have really worked hand in hand with me for the last two and a half years to build these programs. And it really does change the way that AFS members and AFS can be involved in policy. Understanding not only when to communicate with policymakers, but how to communicate with journalists and how to communicate with the larger public to be able to get science out to people in a way that they understand, in a way that's relevant to them. We've done our Climate Ambassador Program. We've done the Climate Fellows Program for state agencies. We've done some programming for federal agencies, specifically classes for them. And we just finished a great round of programming at the Spokane Annual Meeting. Really, the leaps and bounds that 
fisheries professionals can make by getting involved in science communication training can help them professionally, but also can help them um, advance narratives around important policy issues. Because if you're not understanding, you can't people reach people where they are, then it's very hard to change outcomes and shape policy. Right. We may have already skipped over this question, so we can end up cutting this out if necessary. But I was going to ask for an overview of your work as the AFS policy director and then move into the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. So do you have more to talk about as your job as the policy director? Or do you want to <laughs> well, just move sure. There's, You know, I would love to chat about the different approach that we take in policy, yeah. that AFS takes in policy now than we have in the past. So in the last, you know, five or six years, AFS has really changed and grown our policy program. So back in the old days, we used to produce these long scientific papers with lots of citations, which we sometimes do in certain cases. But our policy influence is a little bit different these days. We go to the Hill and we do briefings. We actually go to the Hill and actually advocate in support of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Sometimes a committee staff member from the Hill might approach us and ask us to brief them on an issue like like what happened in the development of the bipartisan infrastructure law, where we got to brief them on some fish passage issues that was really important ultimately to what went into that bill. It takes different forms. Sometimes we're signing on to letters. Sometimes we're doing these Hill briefings, but it's a lot more sustained and tangible than a, than a sort of a piece of paper that is developed by a group of scientists that's not necessarily germane to a current issue and that sits on a, cell, on a shelf versus something that's, that's much more in real time and responsive. So mm-hmm. AFS has really built a great policy program. I'm really proud of it and particularly proud of the members who have stepped up to bat to, to help us on this, because again, I'm not a scientist. I'm a lawyer by training and a government affairs professional. So I get us to the table. I help us navigate through that. I shape things for them in a way, for policymakers in a way that they can understand, but the substance has to come from AFS's members and from fisheries professionals. Yeah, that's really, that's an interesting approach. And I'm always kind of curious because I know there's sometimes two schools of thought of how scientists should interact with policy. And I get the impression that one is that we shouldn't interact at all. And one is that we have a really important role in policy. So is there any amount of balancing like different members' perspectives on that? You know, there are legitimate concerns for some federal and state agency people to engaging in policy, but, how that looks for different people can be different, right? But I do not subscribe to the idea that engaging in policy taints a scientist's integrity or taints their science. I, um, I have a lot of strong words about that that I'll say for today, <laughs> but I, I strongly disagree with that. And I think it's actually a professional responsibility and the right of every American citizen that we don't all take to engage in policymaking. And I'd really like more people to consider that. And I think it's a generational shift. I think as new people come into the profession, younger people come into the profession, we're going to see more and more of a shift in that. But, you know, it's funny because AFS started out as an advocacy organization, had a really important role in the passage of some important early federal laws to create some of the federal infrastructure as in, I mean, like the, the federal agencies that deal with fish and wildlife conservation. 
really important to the passage of the Dingle Johnson Act that provides tremendous money for fisheries conservation in the U.S. AFS was at the table for all of that. AFS was at the table at the passage of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, the Federal Fisheries Management Law. So we have, and we will continue to engage in that. And I'm very proud of the work that AFS has done on this front. Yeah, absolutely. I think that might lead into a pretty good segue in talking about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. So I was wondering, what's its current status? I know we've seen lots of pushes recently from AFS about contacting our legislators about it. So I was curious, where are we at with the Recovering America's Wildlife Act? That is wonderful that my messaging is getting through. Um, (laughs) I would love the opportunity to talk about this bill. So the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is an amazing piece of legislation, and we've never been closer than we are now to passing it. It's been in different forms for 25 years or so. And it has a real chance of passing this Congress. So it's the only bill that AFS actively supports in Congress. We don't often have a position on a particular piece of legislation, but we do on this one. And we do actively support this bill. We do some direct lobbying on the Hill. And as you see, we do lots of grassroots pushes to get our members out there, letting their congressmen and senators hear from them. So what this bill would do was it it would um, provide dedicated annual funding of $1.4 billion annually to states and tribes for funding state wildlife action plans to address imperiled species of fish and wildlife and plants before they become endangered. It can also address endangered species as well, but the primary idea is to keep common species common and to keep species that are already imperiled from sliding into extinction. So every state has a state wildlife action plan. It's a condition to receiving state and tribal wildlife grants. Historically, that grant program is severely underfunded. We're talking about $90 million a year, and that varies from year to year. That's on the high end of what Congress might appropriate for that program. In order for states to really address these imperiled species that really don't get any funding anywhere else, we're talking about, you know, little bitty darters and, you know, other fish that just don't have any recognition. They're not, they're not fished, right? Same thing for species that are not hunted, you know, wildlife species that are not hunted. So this would give states 75% of the funds they need to implement state wildlife action plans. It's dedicated funding, meaning it's not subject to annual appropriations year after year. It's a set amount. The House has passed the bill, you know, in the Senate, the bill has moved through committee markup and we're just awaiting floor time. We're really, really excited at the prospect of this bill potentially getting in the continuing resolution that would fund the government, um, maybe through a couple of months, maybe through December. We're not sure how long, and it's a little bit of a long shot to get it in the continuing resolution. But if that doesn't happen, we're trying really, really hard to get it passed after the midterm session and the lame duck session when Congress comes back after this next election cycle this fall. Really hopeful, really proud of our members for getting out the call. We have a big coalition that works on this bill. But, you know, if you hear those calls to action, we need people to take them really, really seriously because we really are at the threshold of passing this bill. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear. I was actually going to ask a follow-up question about which species it would provide funding for, because I always am like, oh, suckers never get enough love. And (laughs) well, species like suckers, and there's lots of them out there. So it's exciting to hear it's not just focused on game species. Yeah, so each state has the ability to decide which 
fish and wildlife were included in its state wildlife action plan and species of greatest conservation need. So that's done on a state by state basis. So, you know, it's evaluated and the plans are redone every 10 years or so. And many of the next revisions are going to be taking into account more information about climate change and more, you know, being more responsive to climate change and and the threats to some of these species from climate change. So, um, you know, good, good, good work being done by the agencies there. Are there any other pieces of legislation or recent policy acts? I don't even know if I'm asking this question correctly, but that might be important for fisheries professionals to know about the, like the Inflation Reduction Act or something like that. Yes. So, so two things I'd like to touch on. One is this sort of this historic legislation that has passed between the bipartisan infrastructure law and then the Inflation Reduction Act earlier this summer. So we're talking about historic investments in fish passage and conservation, watershed restoration, ecosystem resilience, forest health, really important things, sort of a once in a generation kind of funding for these programs that, you know, there's such a great need for. So I sort of touched on a little bit about the bipartisan infrastructure law. We had a great session in Spokane, which sort of outlined this. So anybody who attended the meeting virtually or in person, there's access to that information on, you know, the the meeting website where you can still get that content. We're talking like 1.2 or $1.4 billion for this ecosystem restoration and fish passage work. I mean, a tremendous amount of money spread between the federal agencies that will go out to do this good work. The trick on this is going to be how to coordinate these investments in fish passage and aquatic connectivity. So we're doing this at the watershed levels, that we're getting the biggest bang for the buck. And at the end of the day, we have a real story to tell. So it's not just getting money out of the door on a piecemeal fashion, but how do you connect those last few miles in a watershed? How do you make sure the right dams are coming out or being breached? And then next door on the Forest Service land, you're getting you're getting fish able to get up into the headwaters so they can have more climate resilience. That all these agencies are talking to each other, including the Department of Transportation, as these projects are being done. Um, and at AFS, we're trying to figure out what is the role of AFS and fisheries professionals in helping to bridge this gap. Is it working through fish habitat partnerships to do this? Is there another mechanism that will be put in place for this sort of coordination? But we think that that's going to be really, really important. And we've been part of those conversations both in Spokane and before, and we'll be continuing that and trying to figure out the best role for fisheries professionals to be involved in that and at the table so that we have good, good outcomes for fish in this case. The great news about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but the investments in the bill are supposed to reduce emissions from 2005 levels by 40% by 2030. A big deal. I mean, it's a climate bill, in essence, when others have have failed to come to fruition. So it's not the end of what we need, but it is a huge step step forward. And, And, you know, AFS has been advocating for the need to reduce emissions. We don't have a position on how that needed to happen, but we're really pleased to see this progress. And we are continuing to keep up the fight. You know, we've got another class of climate ambassadors that we're taking applications for. And this is a group of scientists that are learning those best practices and science communication so that they can go out and help shape the narrative around climate change, help people understand what it means for them, what it means for aquatic ecosystems, what it means in their communities, and really helping to 
convince people that it matters in their lives so that they will demand action around this at the end of the day. Awesome. Are there any other topics or things you'd like to touch on? Well, I'd love to talk about the WOTUS rule and sort of what's going on with that. So this is historically an issue, Waters of the U.S., the definition under the Clean Water Act has been something AFS has been working on for a long time, longer than I've been at AFS. And we've really dug in on this the last five years, and we've seen tremendous support of our members and sharing their expertise. There is a case before the Supreme Court that will be heard on October 3rd, Sackett versus EPA, which very well could decide the course of how waters of the U.S. are defined. So, you know, historically, Clean Water Act has not really defined the extent of what qualifies as a waters of the U.S. and where federal agencies can require a dredge or fill permit on certain waters. It's gone through lots of different rulemakings under lots of different administrations, all subject to court challenges. And so this case before the Supreme Court is not over a rule, it's actually over a particular couple's property and whether the lower court used the right test to determine whether they had waters of the U.S. on their property. So the court could just narrowly decide that particular issue, but it's very likely that the court could take a more a broader view and decide, well, what do, we, do we look at a very narrow definition of water, the waters of the U.S. like Justice Scalia put forth? Mm-hmm. Or is it going to be a broader definition that's more aligned with the science of watershed connectivity like Justice Kennedy proposed? We're not sure, but there's a very conservative majority on the Supreme Court right now, and they may take this opportunity. And it very well could be a, a not ideal situation for our clean waters. So we're watching it very closely. We're also waiting for the EPA to come out with a new rule, which they've said they're going to do by the end of the year on waters of the U.S. So those two things are sort of intersecting. We'll have oral arguments before the court in October. AFS has a Supreme Court amicus brief that we filed in that case. Um, We'll be looking out for a rulemaking. And then in the spring, we'll be looking out for an opinion from the court. So there's lots to watch on this. I don't have a lot of answers right now, but I am very concerned. Yeah. In the case that they take a narrower definition of waters of the U.S., would the way to get it back more aligned with our scientific understanding be introducing legislation? Like, is is that the only way to go about it or... Uh, Yes. So Congress has never really defined it. And up until now, they've never really had the political will to do it. It's a very complicated issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I would not, based on the intel that I have, I would not look out for Congress to act on it. So we may be stuck with a bad decision for a while, but I'm hoping it doesn't come out that way, but I am not optimistic. I don't have a great segue here, but (laughs) you're obviously very knowledgeable on policy, but I'm always curious, what hobbies and interests do you have outside of your work? Because I think it's easy to get bogged down in just what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. (laughs) Well, I have two small children, an eight-year-old and a three-year-old, so I don't really have hobbies anymore. (laughs) Um, I used to play tennis once upon a time. I do like to travel. I had a great trip to Scotland earlier this year and spent some time at the beach, but my true passion is interior design and sort of historic homes, historic architecture, but that's more of a Instagram hobby than a real life hobby. Yeah. (laughs) I think it still counts. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, that brings us to the close of what we call the tough part of the interview and brings us to our final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests that comes on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? You always ask me that. You guys always ask me that. (laughs) I don't have a favorite fish. I don't really fish, but I'm going to go with vermilion snapper this time because my son caught his first vermilion snapper fishing offshore this summer. So that's the new one. All right. Sounds great. Uh, What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Hmm. I would say working on Deepwater Horizon with this team that was really amazing. And it was made up of really great, strong women that I'm still friends with today. So lots of memories from that time, lots of great people that I worked with. So that has to be it. Awesome. What is your dream job and or location? So my dream job was to move to Washington, D.C. and do government affairs. So I got it. If not, (laughs) if I ever did anything else, I would be an interior designer. Great. (laughs) If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? So at AFS, that would be to do a fly-in to D.C. to walk the hill with our members. It's a little expensive, and I don't uh, have enough people yet who want to do that. Uh, But if we had the funding, I would love, love, love to do that. It's one of my outstanding goals for my work as policy director for AFS. So if anybody wants to fund that for us, let me know. Well, there is a part where I ask you for your contact info so they can reach you through that if they want to fund it. That's great. <laughs> All right. Our last question is if there's one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Oh, we've already talked about it today. It is the need for communications to influence policy and those science communication skills to speak with non-scientists are one of the most valuable skills I think a scientist can learn to help influence policy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was really nice to hear about your work and some current legislation that's up and relevant to us. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how can they do that? Dwinters at fisheries.org. Great. I'll include that in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. Or send us an email to feedback at fisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, being able to communicate your work with non-scientists is one of the most valuable skills you can learn to help influence policy. 